To put it simply, no one is coming to help. There is not a brain trust that's going to figure it out, work out the problems while we ponder and wait. The most complex, radical climate technology on Earth is the human heart and mind, not a... Welcome to a special bonus episode of The Real Organic Podcast. Today, we're sharing one of our favorite interviews with climate author and activist, Paul Hawken. It was recorded in late 2020. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you as usual this Tuesday when our guest is Severin von Scharner Fleming. So, Paul, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm happy to be there. Well, let's take the next step then from natural capitalism to drawdown. So what was that evolution for you? That evolution, it started in 2001, and I was always an environmental writer and grew up in the Sierra Club and around, you know, so I was kind of, I thought everybody was an environmentalist, you know, until I moved out of Berkeley. And, um, but I knew I didn't know much about climate, and so I really, I was so impressed by Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance, and Bill McKibben's The End of Nature, and Jim Hansen's work. And I thought we had some really bright, smart people. We do. I mean, they are and were. Um, and so I just felt like that wasn't my province, you know, that was an area where I, I would ever catch up with these guys. And um, I always mentioned it and referred to it you know, in my environmental writing, but never really dug deep until 2001. And and that's when the third assessment came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it was more pessimistic than the second, which is more pessimistic than the first. And, and the fourth and fifth successively have been the same. And, and that's because um, they're based on consensus science. And consensus science uh, is, is, is actually BS. There's no such thing as consensus science. Consensus science um, is it means that the Saudi Arabians and the Venezuelans and the Chinese and the Russians and God knows why else the U.S. could actually tamp down the science. It was a it was a, a consensus, all right, but it wasn't a science consensus. It was a political consensus to, you know, and 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 so because science is evidentiary, it has nothing to do with consensus. If science was consensus, it wouldn't be science. And um, and so I wanted to know then, at 2001, I wanted to, well, as an English major, I became confused about the language that, that, that was being used by science, actually. Yeah. And pedograms and gigatons and, and, and one five, 2C. And I mean, how many Americans understand Celsius, really, you know? And um, and just the the whole language was was very arcane and removed from everyday's people's everyday understanding, and it was also emphasizing future existential threat. By twenty fifty, this will happen. By twenty this, by this, but you know, always in the future. And but mostly the language and the verb, the verbiage and the verbs themselves, mitigating, combating, fighting, tackling climate change and and I felt like those verbs aren't goals yeah. uh, and I wanted to name the goal and so that's when I started to say can we name the goal drawdown if you're going the wrong way and you know it <laughs> and it's heading to a cliff or whatever you stop and you turn around. so that's drawdown and the next thing I began to talk to NGOs and institutions, colleges, universities, friends, and say, can we just map, measure, and model the most substantive, impactful solutions to reversing global warming? Two things there, measure it and they're reversed. They can lead us to reversal, that is to stop and, you know, and, and begin to draw down, you know, the CO2 that we have put in the air. And um, everybody that I talked to actually was interested in that, but not interested in doing it. They thought it was a good idea. Mm. And I, I thought it was a good idea too. And they would ask me, well, why don't you do it? And I said, if I knew how to do it, I wouldn't be asking you. And, and so, because <laughs> nothing happened for several years and I forgot about it. And 
until 2013. And that's when Bill uh, McKibben uh, wrote uh, Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. And what he had done is basically uh, set a match to all the unburnable carbon in the balance in the balance sheets of the coal, gas, and oil companies all over the world. And um, research that Mark Campanelli had done at Carbon Tracker in London, and it just burned it. And of course, it was horrific what would happen. And so it was terrifying. But I had friends come to me then and just say, wow, it's, you know, it's game over. We tried, we failed, we did our best. I'm going to try to see if I can get you know, move to the Squamish Valley in British Columbia, or I mean, move north, and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I had the opposite experience. I felt like when people give up, sometimes um, there's an opening. Actually, it's because it's like surrender. Like I don't know. Either did I, by the way. And um, so that's when I started Project Drawdown to, to. Let's figure it out. And, you know, I mean, climate change to that point had been in the public sphere for 40, 45 years. So it wasn't news. And nobody had made a list of the top 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, you name it, solutions. It, it did not exist. Nobody had done the math, which I found anthropologically fascinating to this day. Like, I, I mean, you can Google the top 10 Asian badminton players, and it will, in a less than a millisecond, it will be there on your screen, right? Yeah, right. The arcane things that you can ask the top 10 of are extraordinary. Top 10 solutions to global warming. And it's just hysterically funny. I mean, you need a concerned scientist had put a power strip in your home entertainment center. I'm not kidding. It's like, what? This is the union concerned scientist, you know? Right. And everyone was different and there was no math. It was like, oh, well, use cold water, you know, when you're washing the machine. It's like, I mean, <laughs> like, yeah. And and the thing is, for people who cared and were concerned, if, if, unless you had an IQ lower than room temperature, if you looked at this list, you'd know we're screwed. This is what if this is what I can do, uh, it's so inadequate to the task and the enormity at hand uh, that and no wonder people were giving up. You know, I mean, and so I felt like we should do drawdown, and so um, that's how it came about. Yeah, yeah. I think that 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 overwhelm that uh, so many of us confront when we when we deal especially with this problem is uh it, it is kind of the question that we somehow have to answer or find the language for or find the way of uh getting together to talk about I, just as an example i have a, a good friend who is a professor of labor history and um she's a fighter and she's an activist and she's out all the time working for what's is that, that is that juliet shore that is annalise orlick and she's a professor at dartmouth and uh she just wrote a book called we're all fast food workers now and uh <laughs> that line actually came from an adjunct professor down in florida who made the same amount of money as he would have made as a greeter at walmart and uh you know, with all the same problems in his life of making that money. And, you know, that that so she wrote a book about the the global uh, labor movement and the ways in which it is finding connection in this new uh, economy, this new uh, wired up economy. And uh, and agriculture, incidentally, is in there. There's a whole thing on the on the Driscoll's boycott, all that quite interesting. When I talk with her about climate change she gets it and she cares but i see that that she gets that kind of unfocused haziness that we all get because we go e yeah but what can i do about this and it it i see that this is the thing drawdown is beautiful it it lists if we just did these things 
then it is game over. Game over. We won. We we have reversed it. We have we have drawn down enough and created a green enough verdant planet to cool itself. So it is the human motivation and belief system and ability to act that is the real challenge here. Uh, I agree with her. I mean, I, listen, I created, imagined, and executed with a great team of people, by the way. I mean, I got um, Jada, okay. But I, it, was, it was limited by, by choice. I, I actually kept it very limited. And because I always knew I was going to do Regeneration, the sequel. And, and the reason for that is, and so the research that was done, the methodology we, that we used was very conservative. We only did solutions that were scaling, number one. Number two, they had to have extensive peer-reviewed science. Number three, they had to have robust economic data from internationally respected institutions, IEA, World Bank, Bloomberg Energy, IPCC, whatever. Only when those three occurred would we actually model a solution, right? And then when we modeled it, we chose the median, the low median, if there is a range in, in terms of its impact, either sequestration or avoided emission. And then we chose a very low learning rate. The learning rate is how fast something goes down in terms of cost, you know, mm-hmm. to the buyer. Like so it scales up. As it yeah. scales, the cost goes down. We chose almost flat learning rates. I mean, we just didn't speculate that, oh, it's going to be half as much in five years. And those are the numbers. Okay. And my purpose in doing so was that nobody from particularly the science community, but could do a gotcha, which is the science community is the gotcha community. And then you do something that misses a decimal point or whatever. And they're right there. Like, you know, kind of like dogs in the bushes, you know, they're going to, they're going to bite your ankle. And I want to make sure that, that nobody could go after it and say, yeah, but, you know, a yeah, but, you know, all these guys and these people, they, you know, California, blah, blah, blah. And we never did get a gotcha. In fact, it's, you know, taught from not only fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, every grade school in the United States, it's taught in MIT graduate school. And Stanford Graduate School, and you know, and and many others, and and fourteen languages, because it kind of it it was sort of impeccable that way. Okay, but what's missing? What's missing is all sorts of things, and I'm acutely aware of it. And that's what regeneration really, uh, uh, really addresses, and and that is that um, society and and and. Poverty and social justice. Uh, I mean, they're not there because I, tr- I felt if I tried to do too much in one book, it would be rejected, discarded, or people weren't ready for it in a way, you know, to see the connections. And really, regeneration is about stitching together the broken strands that connect us to each other, connect us to nature and connect nature to nature, which we, We've been doing nothing for the last 200 years but severing and breaking them and smashing them, you know. And so, and I, and I, I kind of want to say, I don't write it, but I say, generation, how is generation working for you all, you know? It's not. And so it's the same thing, which is we have to stop doing that and turn around and go the other way. And regeneration, I mean it in the broadest sense, not just soil, you know, yeah. which is yeah. extraordinary. Not just in terms of wetlands, coastlands, peatlands, not just in terms of grasslands, but it, but actually in terms of our cities, our schools, our society, you know, um, in, in, in all ways, because they co-evolve, they affect each other. Our ill health in the world comes to no small part from the fact that our soil turned to dirt. <laughs> that, yeah. that connection that conceptual connection has been broken as the physical connection has been broken. Both. I mean, like, lot, most people don't even realize, you know, that food is only a one third as nutrition, as nutritious as it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and, um, and so regeneration is really just a pleasure to do because it's so much about 
creation and innovation and beauty, but it's also very much about, you know, it encompasses oceans for sure, but equity and, and um, forests, but also favelas, you know, grasslands and ghettos, mountains and migrants. It, and, and not to make it complicated, but to make it connected and beautiful and to show that um, b- basically um, we have ghettoized climate. We've ghettoized the solutions. We've siloed it. We think it belongs to the environmental minister in a country. That's their problem. My problem is housing or fisheries or transport or health or education, defense and finance. And no, it's the, the solutions to reversing global warming impact beneficially every single aspect of human well uh, uh, of human endeavor and it's in everybody's portfolio if you're a minister of a government and it's everybody's business and virtually except for oligarchs everybody benefits everybody benefits yeah yeah so so um Beautiful. So first, I just want to tell people who might be listening, Regeneration is the name of Paul's next book. So because not everyone knows that. Yeah, it's the next book. It's the subtitles Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Okay. Yeah. And so there's our challenge, right? There's the the goal. It's the high bar. Yeah. 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 All right. And and, uh, can you can you give uh, uh, a little coming preview of how we might do that, you know, because I think that, you know, just kind of uh, how do how do we approach that? Yeah. Well, I mean, working from the back forward, the back of the book is uh, do this is what to do. And it is basically um, reversal by the numbers. And it, <laughs> it goes by every type of agency from a student all the way to a governor or prime minister. And everyone and everybody in between, you know, you can be a student, you can be single, you can be a couple, you can be married with children, you can be a renter, you can be a a homeowner, Um, you can be a a village, a community, a city, an urban, you know, megalopolis, you can be a province, a state. And it, it outlines really the top, and it doesn't go beyond that in terms of emphasis, emphasizes the top seven, eight things you can do in each of those um, in order to reduce impact by 50% by 2030. All right. And very clear, very clean. It, it certainly talks about these are all other things you can do too. It's not uh, avoiding them. But there's surprises there. You know, if an individual is like, stop buying clothes, buy six garments a year, that's your limit. Fast fashion is 10% of global emissions. And, and so, but that's not true for, say, uh, a mayor. You know, his or her uh, basically agency is different, you know, for a school uh, teacher or principal or somebody who does buildings and grounds, you know, at the schools. So, well, their agency is different, you know. So that's where it's that's where it ends up. But where it starts is the number one uh, solution to reversing global warming is, you know, and drum roll, please, especially talking to your audience is soil. Yeah. Is soil by far by two three x? I mean, what I'm talking about is that we emphasize energy, and we should. We if we don't stop putting it up there, hard we're gonna hardly solve it, of course. And so that is absolutely important, imperative, no question about it. I don't gain say that one bit, uh, but but we can turn off our energy. Today, for example, we could snap a finger, it could all go to renewable, we would still be going over the cliff because we lost climatic stabilization quite some time ago. We're at 496 parts per million, not 415 or 13. I mean, it varies right now, but because we don't count the other greenhouse gases, you know, of methane and nitrous oxide and chlorofluorocarbons and SF6, those are there. And in their uh, global warming potential and CO2 equivalents, we're at 496 ppm. This is beyond anything in the last 25, 30 million years. And, and so we're in Terra Nova. We have no idea what this means or what's going to go on. 
So unless we're talking about bringing carbon back home, we're not serious about uh, you know stabilizing and reversing global warming. And the most powerful way to do it is in in grasslands and farmlands, no question about it. Which means regenerative uh, organic agriculture, and um, and 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 then then next comes forests, and and then next comes oceans, wetlands, you know, seagrass, marshes, and things like that. And then comes food, and it's hard to disaggregate food and agriculture, <laughs> and so. Um, but I mean, we make a, we delineate it, but actually you put food and ag together and then it's even much bigger. I mean, it is number one life, even more so than it already is. Um, and then in, in regenerative, in soil, uh, Dave, we have, uh, 23 practices, regenerative practices. So, and what I say in that is that this is, this is not a return to an idealized past, you know, yes. regenerative agriculture. This is a booming, emergent technology that has more, you know, more moving parts than any shiny object ever coming out of Silicon Valley, you know. But those shiny objects are actually, parts are actually alive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, they're not parts. They're part of a system. And that... Um, uh, as, as Dorn, uh, Park said, you know, regenerative agriculture is not rocket science, you know, it's more complex, you yeah. know, and, 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 and so for people to understand that what's going on right now is this uh, extraordinary amount of observational science that's aggregating, you know, into an understanding that we did not have in the climate science world. The climate scientists referred to people who talked about soil as being a basis for sequestration is, oh, they said, oh, those are the soil people, you know. They really dismissed it. The IPCC, the fourth assessment was, didn't mention except stop putting it up there and cutting trees, you know, but, but didn't talk about it as a solution. Now they are, and now people are saying nature-based solution. How cute. The whole thing is nature-based, everybody. <laughs> Every aspect of what we do is nature-based. We just don't see the connection to, or it's nature-destructive, of course, but in many cases. And so, what what I'm saying in the book is, if it happens, it's you know it's possible, and that's science too. And we have farmers, you know, who've been at this for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, and and their carbon, their soil organic carbon levels are six, seven, eight percent, you know. And instead of half percent, instead of one percent, and those are beyond what the traditional soil science establishment, the paradigmatic establishment, thinks is possible. Well, then right. go, go to the farm and stick your own probe in there for God's sake, June. But don't you don't have to question it. You should do what the farmer does, which is stand on the ground and <laughs> and you know there's a wonderful. Story, and I think David Montgomery's book about about a farmer who was sort of being mau mowed and you know patronized by soil agronomists, you know, about the amount of carbon he had in the soil. It's a Canadian farmer, and he kind of listened to it. I think it was, I think I know who it is, but I'm, uh, my memory might be correct. But it doesn't matter. The story holds. And uh, and he listened to them telling them how complicated it was. And you don't really know how much carbon's in there, and there's labeled and occluded carbon. You know, he's like as if he was a dummy. And he said, "Well, uh huh." He said, and then he said, "You see that auger over there? You know, it's a soil auger." And he said, "See that tape there?" He said, "Okay, that's thirty-four inches." And and he said, "So I just auger that, and I take those last three inches, and I I give it to the woman." And she puts it in a meatloaf pan and weighs it, and then she bakes it and weighs it again. And she knows exactly how much carbon's in that soil. And he's right. He's absolutely right, you know. And so there's a kind of emerging science that's coming out right now that that can lead to a trillion tons of, of CO2 equivalent in carbon being yes. sequestered over the next 40, 50 years, you know? So um, I, I agree with everything that you said. And 
I also know that, uh, let's say, time is of the essence here in this conversation in terms of changing what's happening. And I also know that uh, there are enormously powerful interests that do not want to see that thing change. That's right. And uh, because they're making a great deal of money off the system just as it is. Uh-huh. Michael Pollan has said he might have been quoting Obama, but he said, you know, until you can light up the switchboard, you don't have a food movement. Yeah. And I think of that a lot, which is that uh, I was at a meeting with some congressional people and we were talking about the Green New Deal. And I said, yeah, but the truth is you're all not going to be able to do this unless you have a lot of us at your back. You just can't do it. It'll be suicide. We have to we have to be there demanding this. So if that is if if we have the the science, if we have the knowledge base to do this, and I think we do in in a better agriculture, what we lack is the ability to change the economic and the political system to allow it to happen. Do you have any thoughts about (laughs) how we can do that? (laughs) Well, yeah, first of all, we have a different governing system than, say, again, Denmark or many other countries. You know, it's dysfunctional to the max. And therefore, um, I I mean, my own feeling about all that is that um, we sort of been looking for love in all the wrong places. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to change the system. I'm not saying give up or, or ignore, not, not at all. Um, but in our country, the most powerful agent for change is the individual. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that, I mean, that sounds like nonsense. You know, people feel powerless, you know. Um, but, you know, I mean, look at the Congress of the Parties has met, well, it was a Kyoto Protocol, but since 97, there's been 25 global meetings of world leaders and, um, and connected annually. And the atmosphere hasn't noticed a thing. Not one thing. And, and we're worse off today than when they began because there's no agency at, at that level of confluence. Conferences begin and end, you know, governments come and go, committees, you know, commitments are just words, they don't mean anything. And so, uh, but we can look at things like the Berlin Wall or Greta Thunberg and so forth. Why did Greta Thunberg become so effective? She became effective not just because she held a little cardboard sign in front of the school saying she was striking you know, due to climate, she was effective because climate change and the science of it was being taught all over the world to our children. And it never was when you and I went to school. Right. They knew what she was talking about. And so within a year of her sign, there was the largest climate march in history from that little sign. What... What I'm getting to here is the, the when the conditions are right, and you, you don't even know necessarily that they're right. Greta Thunberg did not know the conditions were there. Every student did not know the conditions were there. The students at Parkland High School, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, who started basically, um, what was it, the... Um, they started the March for Our Lives. Mm-hmm. Those students, that is what inspired Greta Thunberg. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. So you, you go back and say this little, I mean, the shooting was horrific, but I mean, the students getting together and organizing, it's an extraordinary school, actually. But that then, how did Greta hear about that? How did that inspire her? Why did she say, well, okay, I'm just going to strike and sit in front of the steps, you know, and do that in the cold? Well, it was August when she started, but, and it's cold and sweet in August. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and then, you know, and so, but conditions like that are arising right now. I, I really, really believe without doubt that that's what's happening in the world. I see it anecdotally. I have CEOs come to me with tears in their eyes. They're doing their quote, quote, right thing, commitments and this and that and going to, you know, zero 
net zero by 2050 and blah, blah, blah. They are, and they mean it. They're sincere and that's good. And they have tears in their eyes because they know it's not sufficient. And they have children and grandchildren in some cases. And they're like, and they're like, their heart is breaking. That is happening. I mean, so something is shifting. And I have no doubt in my mind that in a way that will be precipitated uh, in, in, in a way that nobody can predict right now that this is the, we are at the crest of the largest movement in the history of humankind. And it's forming. It's forming like a mycelium in the under, you know, you can walk under it all day long and not see the mycelium. And it's there, you know. And in the spring, then fungi come up, mushrooms, you know, but where were they? Well, there, there was, it was there. And I think without, and, and I'm not a kind of, you know, uh, fantasizing guy, or I'm not into hope. I don't believe in hope. I think that's just a, a mask of fear. I believe in action and courage, but I do think I'm just looking at it. I'm going, you watch this thing is going to break wide open, uh, all over the, all over the planet. And, um, because it's becoming experiential instead of conceptual. The languaging and the, uh, the talk about it and future existential threat, uh, threat was all conceptual. It's like, okay, but I got a job to do. I have a mortgage to pay. I have children to take care of. I have a mother who's sick with Alzheimer's. I can't handle that. Excuse me. And it wasn't germane and pertinent to people's lives. And it's going to be, and they're going to see, and that's why I want to talk about a generation. We have to make sure that people see the benefit, you know, and if we want to get, the attention of humanity to this, then we have to, humanity has to feel it's, it's getting attention. And that attention means that it, that, that we have a climate movement that actually serves the poor, the excluded, the disenfranchised, the children, you know, that we're meeting basic needs here. We're not trying to meet the needs 30 years from now for upper middle class white people. We're trying to meet, we're about meeting human needs now everywhere. Um, and if we don't do that, it'll be ignored and we'll fail. There's no question about that. And that's what I feel that's emergent in the climate movement, a much different movement than the top-down Al Gore, et cetera, you know, um, citizens' climate lobby, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's great, great, great stuff, but I feel like something is yeah. emerging. And, and so I do have a sense of how um, this will emerge. In the United States, it's a very peculiar country. That's, uh... Yes. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, you know, sometimes I, I talk with people and say, you know, what we do in Vermont is so important because, for whatever reason, we have a tremendously outsized influence on the country, and the country has a tremendously outsized influence on the world, and. Uh, you know, so maybe what we do on some farm in Vermont might impact the world. I, I, I believe that. I do too. I do yeah. too. Uh, um, in, in, in Eastern Chinese and um, in, uh, I don't know, it's not mythology, it's, it's just sort of wisdom. Uh, the great ideas, the great, the great changes always come from the Northeast. <laughs> Oh, I mean, like in a kind of geomancy way, that's where, you know, where did the transcendentalists come from? Where did, I mean, look, look what came from New England, you know? I mean, tell me, I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright said, if you shook America, everything loose would end up in L.A., you know? It would end up in Vermont. <laughs> and, and it's true, you know, and I'm not saying there's not great things going on there, but but really it it, it does come from places that may be overlooked, but that's where the great ideas and thinking come from and have you know, Harvard and Yale are in the Northeast. You know, yeah. Not that they're perfect, but they are. Well, maybe we should end on that, although we're not done, but uh, let's invite everybody to come to the Northeast, to the symposium, the Real Organic Project Symposium on April 3rd and 4th and hear uh, Paul talking more about this. I, I think it's going to be uh, an enormously important event, I do, for that, that coming together and building enough critical mass to 
and spread spread ideas back across the country. So I'm very excited to have Paul coming along with many other people from all over the country, in fact, all over the world. We have somebody coming from Magical Denmark to talk about uh, how they have gotten the government of Denmark to commit uh, $160 million to taking the country organic, which would be the equivalent of about, I think, $19 billion in U.S. dollars. So, uh, you know, th- there are changes happening and they're possible. I, I look to any place that uh, is is creating a model that, that, you know, we can be encouraged by. So... Paul, thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope I didn't rant too much. But uh, (laughs) obviously, obviously I'm thinking about this, (laughs) and not to say that I'm right, but but definitely engaged, you know, and caring as you are, and as I'm sure all the fantastic people I get to meet at the conference, and um, uh, and I love conferences like that because most of the time I'm, my mouth shut and I get to learn something. So I hope I know I learn a lot being there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for what Great. you do. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. After um, Paul and I finished our, our formal interview, uh, our conversation continued and we got into such important issues that I, I included them. In today's podcast, I find that uh, Paul's thinking about how we go beyond fear, how we go beyond shame, how we go beyond blame in order to actually find the, the courage to take action. How do we actually build coalitions that are capable of creating change rather than just talking about change? So please stay tuned and dive into that with me. So we'll we'll end the show there. I have a question though, uh, and it, it, I had a note about it. It's so interesting to me your your approach. Uh, no fear, no shame, no blame. And uh, as soon as you're right, you make somebody else wrong, and you're divided again. These are these are things that you said. And and again, it's not my job to change somebody else's mind. It's my job to change my mind. And that's hard enough. And I I think that, you know, I'm 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 trying to really uh, understand in my bones what you're talking about, because I I I see something enormously uh, important there. I'm often out talking in situations in which the things I say make some people in the room uh, fearful. And, uh, and it, I really work not to be accusing because I, I know that then we just get the division. We don't get change, but I I just, you have any thoughts about that? Uh, You know, you're taking a, something about here. You're saying, you know, we're facing species extinction, but no fear, <laughs> no shame, no blame. All right. You know, the, you know, it's, it's, that's a, that's a narrow ridge to walk as Martin Buber would say. <laughs> well, I, I think it's the other way around. I think it's the, the widest, best road of all. Um, and so the narrow ridge, the, I mean, the, the, the fear thing, the fact thing is, you know, like Wendell Berry, you know, be joyful though, you know, all the facts. It doesn't mean don't, Get it. I get, I have an RSS feature that would make most people take Prozac, you know. I mean, the news I get every day, I, I do it in the morning, by the way, I get the news in the morning, not at night. And, uh, I have to stay, you know, up to date, you know, on science. And yeah. the, the science is like, ah. <laughs> and, um, and I take it seriously, and I do go into uh, a mourning, you know, I mean, I do mourn and grieve, so it's not like I'm, you know, perky. Um, that's a private act, you know, for me. When I'm speaking to people, um, I, I want to, I'll speak facts, um, but I'm presenting it as facts, okay? And... So knowing all the facts and so forth is the starting place for action, not denying the facts or, or putting a lipstick on a pig, you know, I mean, 
that's that you're going to go the wrong direction or you're not going to do anything at all. And so to me, the scope and breadth and depth of the problem is then is the uh, amplifier and uh, of the depth and scope and breadth of the solutions. In other words, it, they, they have to match, you know, otherwise, mm. you know. And so when you have what I call unreasonable goals, you know, you know, like can't be done, right? Thank you for sharing. <laughs> You're probably right. But it's a forcing function, just like in calculus, which is a forcing function then creates outcomes and breakthroughs and innovation that would not have happened otherwise. Yes. If you not have that unreasonable goal. Yes. And that, so an unreasonable goal depends on a reason assessment of where we are. Otherwise, it's, 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 you know, diluted. It's like, to me, mitigating is such a word. What a mitigate. And I ask people, maybe I, do you know what mitigate means even? Can somebody raise their hand? You know, and everybody like, I said, it means reducing the pain of something. Is that what we want to do? Is we want to reduce the pain of the climate crisis? Is that our goal? Right. And so that's the kind of language where you, you've tempered the problem, you know, and, uh, and then the thing about blame chain, uh, is that by acting out at, at acting as a victim, then you put yourself in a really bad position because then you're the object of the sentence or the object of the problem. And you're always looking at others as what they did wrong, what they think wrong, what they say wrong, what they believe wrong, whatever. And there you are. You're, yeah. you're, you see, instead of thinking, what is not right, but what is beautiful? What is imaginative? What is extraordinary? What is beguiling? What is helpful? What is connecting? What brings people together? What would solve this person's problem? This is a poor problem. This is a poor person. This is this problem. I mean, what would solve that? And now that's where your mind is every day. You know, it's where when I do a book like this, I mean, I wake up with it, I go to sleep with it. I mean, even though in meditation, you're not supposed to identify, you're supposed to identify your thoughts and let them go. And, <laughs> and that's what I do, like fear, blame, judgment, you know, fantasy, you know, thought, you know, thought, 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 and all of a sudden, idea. This is a really good idea <laughs> for the book. <laughs> My meditation teacher go, I said, yeah. <laughs> I know. I thought, you know, I'm amazed that all corporations don't have their top executives required to meditate an hour a day for that 10 second thought. Yes. That was a pretty good one. <laughs> So, I mean, that's what happens when you aren't looking at yourself as a victim and, and yeah. fear, fear like, you know, Frank, fear is the mind killer. It just, it kills the, the problem solving. It shuts down, you know, the prefrontal cortex. It just shuts it down. You know? Yeah. It's no fun to live in the amygdala, you know? And so we're only here a short time. You and I are shorter than some other people because, you know, we've been around for a while, but, yeah. but I can't, I don't want to live my life in a sense of we screwed up and, uh, <sighs> do that. yeah. And you didn't, and I didn't, we did, we did our best. Yeah. We, we've tried to help all our life. We tried to help and we, and we absolutely did the best we can because and can we look back and say, I could have done better? Sure, that's that's what the mind does. But at the time, we did the best we could. And we yeah. still are. And there's no, no more could be asked of us by ourselves or others than that. So there's no shame in that sense. And um, if we can help bring other people about in terms of realizing their own sense of agency, I think somewhere... Um, gosh, I want to, uh, I, I don't know if I can find it in, in the, in the, in the new book. Um, yeah. Um, 
I'll read it. So this is segues from a previous paragraph. So the first sentence won't make sense, but it says this requires a worldwide collective committed effort. Um, Collectives do not emerge from the top of institutions. They begin with one person and then another, that invisible social space where commitment and action join and come together to become a dyad, then a group, a team, a movement. To put it simply, no one is coming to help. There is not a brain trust that's going to figure it out, work out the problems while we ponder and wait. The most complex, radical climate technology on earth is the human heart and mind, not a solar panel. So, mm. Yes, beautifully said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I say in my talk that the helicopters are not going to come with us. You know? <laughs> so it's like, where are the helicopters? <laughs> Don't worry. They're not coming. The black They're not coming. It's just us. <laughs> or any other color. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's, that's beautiful what you wrote there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. You, you, uh, I know you're not interested in hope, but you give me, you give me some hope. Um, yeah. I understand. So. I use it sometimes, but it just, for a lot of people, hope is a crutch. Yeah. It's like, oh, I feel so hopeful. Don't do something. Yes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, you know, the, the people I often encounter feel so hopeless, they can't do anything. Right. And, and, you know, that's, uh, you know, careening between terror and depression. And, it, you know, it's finding the place where you can take, take that and, and do something and, and, you know, even do it with a good heart. Um, Absolutely. And go, yeah, you know, this, uh, Pretty good chance this won't work, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you know Jack Cornfield. He's a Buddhist teacher. And he has, sure, he has sure. A spirit rock and is a friend. And then he asked me, he did a beautiful talk on climate change, by the way, really beautiful Dharma talk, a podcast. But he asked me to come on March 2nd to, because he gives the Monday night class, it's called, and to be with him. And uh, I've been thinking about that. In my meditation, in my meditation, like, okay. And then I realized I have a question for Jack, which is why is it that there is not one single antidote, description, or story, narrative about the Buddha smiling or laughing? Mm. <laughs> I doubt it, you know. He's a human being, you know, and uh, and it, we have we don't think we can dance, smile, and laugh about taking care of, of each other in this place that we live on and in every way we know how. And I just don't think that's true. Yeah. And if we, and, and why would people want to work with us anyway? Well, you're going to work with the people who are having the most fun, you know, and not the least. And so, and, and so I wonder about that, you know, because at this, I mean, the earth doesn't care if you're Buddhist, Hindu, or, um, voted for Trump, you know, it's just all, we're all one. <laughs> yeah. And so what is, what's really common to us, which is, you know, what is really connects us, you know, and, um, and those those qualities that are that cross boundaries, you know. And that not only a, a joke that's making fun of a certain belief system or a politician. That's you can you can laugh at it, but that's not what I'm talking about in terms of laughter and joy and yeah. music celebration. You know, I mean, I saw the thing of of um, the document documentary last night uh, on uh, uh, on Taylor Swift, and it was interesting how. You know, she was told by her dad and everybody to never make a political statement that, that country music avoided it absolutely so that people could project onto whatever they wanted to project, you know. And then finally she came out and then how, she, you know, and how she felt like she'd cleansed her soul. Mm. 
finally came out and was herself instead of trying to please others, you know. Um, and so I, I feel like, you know, and she did it in a beautiful way and she didn't lose her fan base. And, uh, and I, I feel like, you know, this, this, the Quaker thing of speaking, there's a way to speak truth to power that is not inflammatory. Yeah. 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 Uh, I hunt for that. Uh, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's right. And, and, and when you find that place, what's fascinating to me is, uh, yeah, people really respond, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like it, people are drawn to, yes, you know, and, and uh, even the people you're speaking truth to who maybe don't like it, if, at the very least, they're confused. Um, you know, they go. I said, the, the truth if you can just get a, a, a grain of sand into that person, you know, figuratively speaking, of truth, yeah, that can that can grow and grow and grow. It starts somewhere, and yeah, <laughs> right, become a pearl. Well, yeah. <laughs> from a Theravadan point of view, uh, there's in everyone there's the, the they call it the one who knows, and every person knows the truth. Mm hmm. Right. Just got covered up. Yeah. Condition, you know. Yeah. Program, yeah. You know, deceived, you know, all that stuff. We all know. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, Paul. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. See you soon. All right. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review. To support this podcast and the work of The Real Organic Project, subscribe to our Real Friends program at realorganicproject.org. If you join before the end of April, you can meet Paul Hawken himself at our monthly book club for our Real Friends. See you next time.